Well, good afternoon and welcome to today's uh, FS Club webinar. It's what we call community chest. It's where we ask one of the members of our community to talk about what's on their mind and what they're doing. And, and I'm delighted today to have a friend uh, on board. Uh, I think anybody who's on community chest is normally a friend, uh, but we have Nicola Williams. Now, Nicola is fantastic. She's a part-time Crown Court judge, author and board member. And she's been, this is one of the most, 100 most influential black people in the UK. And she's had a long career at the bar, uh, commented on things like the O.J. Simpson uh, verdict, and holds a number of board and trustee positions, not least uh, being chairman of the Independence Complaints Panel for the Portman Group. So there's a lot going on in Nicholas's life, and she's here to share it with us today. Um, as ever on Communities Chess, we ask people to explain uh, what they're doing and, and ask the audience for something to do. What, what should we be doing uh, to support their journey and, and where they're headed? Um, one of the great things, though, about all these events is that we're able to ask so many of our sponsors uh, who allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. And today, uh, we're going to see what Nicholas got to say on the experiences, uh, both as a barrister, um, both, both in the law, and, and what her current ask is. So that's going to be what we're going to be covering uh, today on the agenda. Now, law, literature, and the rest. Well, there's quite a bit going on in this, and uh, as we move in... Uh, to our first question area. Uh, let's just move down a second there on the slides. Um, one of the things, Nicola, that I, I was always curious about, uh, curious about anybody is, you know, formative experiences. You've, you've charted a very different path, in fact, a trailblazing path. And I'm kind of curious, what were the formative experiences that pushed you along uh, this road rather than perhaps another? Well, thank you, Michael, and uh, good afternoon to all your listeners, or if they're in a different jurisdiction, it might be morning for all I know. Um, I think, and I always say this, but I think it's particularly pertinent because it's the 75th anniversary of the arrival of, of the Empire Windrush to the United Kingdom. I proudly declare myself as a proud daughter of Windrush generation migrant immigrants. Now, the generation isn't just 1948, it's 1948 to 1971. Uh, my parents came to this country in 1960. Um, but the impetus was still the same. It was uh, a call from the mother country. My um, my parents are Guyanese, not Jamaican, which is where the first wind rush came from, but they're Guyanese. Um, my dad was a police officer in Guyana. My mum was a teacher in Guyana. Um, and my father wanted to study law. And that was the reason why he came. And my mum came primarily because he was here. Um, but uh, things didn't go um, that well for them. This was the bad old days when there was a lot of um, well, the sort of um, anti-racism or anti-discrimination legislation that we have now did not exist then. And there's some horror stories about that. But this is not what this talk is about. In terms of my formative experiences, both of my parents were huge on education. Um, as an example, my mum, when she was pregnant with with me in the UK before she started to work, she read the, she had a big book of the complete works of William Shakespeare. She read it all through the time when she was pregnant with me. And she said, that's one of the reasons why I love Shakespeare so much. And I do. Um, my dad, sadly, is no longer with us, but my mum is still alive. We do still go and watch a lot of Shakespeare. We go to the Globe. We watch a lot of stuff like that. Um, they were big on, edu on education and on achievement. Very strong work ethic. Very, you know, you can achieve whatever you want. Um, and sadly, as a lot of black people, this is something that's quite common that we were told you've got to be twice as good to be considered uh, the same or at least half as good. That was very strong. But really that you can do whatever you want to do. 
And I think that has really been that drive, that ambition is really what I call ethical ambition is really born out of that. You're on mute, Michael. For somebody like me who wasn't there, um, how much of a community were the Windrush people? Uh, have they kept that community going over the years or is it just an event? Oh, no, it, it, it's very much. In fact, I, I suppose if you speak to the older generation, they would say it was much more of a community then. It was a community born out of hostility. It's um, it, things were pretty bad in those days in terms of discrimination. I mean, even in places like the church where you think you'd rock up to your local Church of England church and then find out that you were not welcome. People weren't going to actively kick you out, but they were definitely going to freeze you out. So what made th that made happen was it made a lot of Caribbean migrants, and they were from all over the Caribbean, not just uh, Jamaica, but it made a lot of them really stick together because they saw that they were all having the same kind of struggle um, in employment, in housing, in uh, one of the reasons why home ownership is so high amongst older Caribbean people rather than renting was because they couldn't find people who'd want to rent to them. That was the reason why. Um, uh, but uh, like I say, a, a lot of bonds were formed out of that very much. Um, my parents' generation, you know, we will put up with a lot so our children won't have to go through it and and it's it's very much that kind of sense education is the thing that will take you out of that but then I had another experience which is unusual for, for a lot of people of my age is that I actually had the opportunity to live in Diana from between the ages of 10 and 14. Um, my father became a junior minister in the government of the day and we lived there and that was again a really formative experience for me. I got to see my parents' country of origin. I got to experience it in a very different way. And I also went to a very academically challenging school. I went to a convent school and I'm um, not a Catholic, but I went to a convent school. I won a scholarship to go there. It was a, a common entrance exam and I became came fourth for the entire country. And uh, it was had a very, very strong work ethic there too. So first independent women I ever saw were the nuns in that school. Mm. And one of the things that uh, has always impressed me about you is you're, you're quite a polymath. You have many, many different interests. You know, you mm. could have done just about anything. So was there a formative experience uh, about the law other than your parents? I think um, two things I would say. First of all, my father wanted to be a barrister, uh, but never actually got the chance to qualify. I think when you have a very young family, and particularly in those days, it was it it. it got slightly derailed. So he ended up being a court clerk for the Industrial Tribunal. And before that, um, worked at Mount Pleasant Post Office, where he was the first black shop steward for the for Mount Pleasant, uh, for the post office. But for me, it was, he always had a ton of, there's always been books in our house, always. And my father had a lot of law books that he still read for interest. So there was that. And the other thing is for me personally, I've always liked the idea of sort of um, speaking up for other people in a way that I probably wouldn't do it for myself. I am now, uh, I would very much say that I'm a sort of, not quite introverted, I say I'm, I'm a bit of an ambivert, probably a slightly nerdy ambivert. Um, and so really what that meant, but I was much more introverted when I was younger. And I think what that meant was that I would really have a lot of problems sticking up for myself, but if it was to defend somebody else, I would do it. And I love to do school debates. And I think that it, my interest in the law and how it can be used you know, like money for good or ill, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I really, I think it, the genesis of that started there. So it was either going to be fashion design, a uh, languages degree or law and law won out. So. Okay. 
Well, I think we're very lucky then that law won out. But let's let's move on to the next bit, which is, you know, um, you, you entered the law at an interesting time. Uh, it was a pretty closed shop to begin with. Uh, you're coming in as a woman, uh, as a black woman, and frankly, as an overseas immigrant to boot, uh, in a way. So uh, what were some of the challenges you faced then and now? You know, was there really prejudice there? Um, there was. And I, I'll push back slightly on the third one about being overseas. My parents are overseas immigrants. I was not. I was born in London. Um, but actually, um, when I think about the time that I came to the bar, it, it it's not a long time or it certainly doesn't seem like it for me. But but then it was if I think about how many things have improved much, so much for the better. So I'm very proud of my profession, proud to say that I'm a barrister and a judge. Um, yeah, I can give you that they have been challenges. I mean, the challenges have helped to build resilience. Absolutely. But there have been challenges. Uh, I can give um, some very quick examples um, all the way through. Um, when I was at school doing my A-levels, my three A-levels, my um, careers teacher told me I should forget that and go and work in Woolworths uh, because she thought that was my level. Um, and she actually saw me working when I was doing my law degree. She saw me working at a shop in Croydon, which is where I grew up. And she came up to me and she said, so long ago, I still remember it. I'm so happy that you found something that matched your abilities. And when I told her that I was actually at the end of my first year of my law degree, she got bright red, sort of disappeared off in the corner and never to be seen of again. So that, that, was, that was her. Um, when I was um, an example of, uh, when I was a barrister, this is even after I've been practicing a good couple of years, I remember going to uh, court and I have many more good memories than bad. I just want to emphasize that. But I do remember going to a court to try a, a, a civil case. And at the time when I was practicing, which actually, you know, I'm quite surprised to say this, most um, black and ethnic minority barristers are practicing in law. Uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, practicing in crime. And I loved crime and I still did crime but I also did civil work so I was going to do the civil trial and I turned up at the robing room and there were a couple of barristers in there one of them looked me looked me up and down with my with my my suit on and my case with my wig and gown and everything and he said this is the robing room you know are you lost so yes um I don't know where you thought I would be going with a big case behind me but there you go um, when I was in the Cayman Islands, which is really interesting again, because the Cayman Islands is a, a very um, um, diverse place in terms of ethnicity um, and in terms of um, being a, a foreign national living there. I would say the workforce is 50-50 foreign national and Caymanian, and Caymanians themselves range all the way from white to black. So, for example, within the Cayman Islands, if we were both Caymanian, it would be entirely possible that we would both be blood related. It's it's kind of hard to explain. I, I don't know how to explain it, but I've seen it. <laughs> so I, I, I know uh, very, very wide and extensive family relations. You know, all the people with Ebanks and Bodden as their last name are in some way, form or fashion, all related, even if they don't look like each other. But but then but there I was a foreign national. And that was my um, big issue there. I was a foreign national dealing with trying to keep government honest and sitting on the anti-corruption commission. And the idea that a foreign national would be coming over there, um, as Caymanian saw it, saw it, telling us what to do, as someone said, stalking around on their high heels, speaking her foreign language and other rather more choice words to describe me than that. Um, yeah, foreign accent, rather, not foreign language. Um, 
so that was that was interesting. I, I had a good time in the Cayman Islands, but the first couple of years were um, challenging, I think. And then when I became a judge, I think sometimes people think that um, challenges stop once you get to a certain level. I, they don't stop. What happens is they morph and they change. And I remember when I first became first started sitting as a judge, um, crikey, 13 years ago now. And um, there were some it was still rare and it still is rarer than it should be to see an ethnic minority of any description, but you act, factor in gender as well, um, uh, sitting on the bench. And I had people that literally did a double take, sometimes in a kind of a nice way. It's a sweet old lady, she came in and she was a much older black woman and she came in to be a character witness for her grandson. And she literally rocked back on her heels when she saw me, she couldn't believe it. And she came in, she was like, looking at me all the time. She took the oath, she was looking at me. And then she shot a dagger look at her grandson as if to say, why are you there in the dock and <laughs> she's up here on the bench but you know they're, they're very slight disrespect there's always one person will try it on they won't want to stand up when you come in there's just just little slight shades of disrespect but um all you have to do is put one person in their place once and then nobody else does that again so uh it's uh it, it's certainly something that is manageable something that happens much less to me now because i've been doing it for so long but i i only raise that as a point that um people sometimes think that when you get to a certain stage or age that somehow these things don't happen anymore but they do they still do well we've got a lot of questions coming in so please folks do, do keep sending them in and i'll be i'll be asking them in a, in a moment or two um yes. but i definitely do want to get on to uh, your books which are, are fascinating uh, and also your ask as well um but but speaking of uh, of the books i mean one of the things that i was so pleased was when you gave me a copy of Without Prejudice. I and I'm not buttering you up. Um, my wife would tell you bluntly. We, we were then I was a sheriff at the Old Bailey when we met. We were very proud. Yes. We had just achieved 50-50 um, on the judges, where we we, we were finally 50-50 uh, male female, um, and, yes. and quite rightly proud. As you say, the profession has changed and and continues to change. Um, but I read the book genuinely cover to cover in a car. Uh, it was it really is a good page turner. You're an excellent writer. One of the funniest things though was uh, I remember the opening scene where um, it, it sounded very similar to one about the robing room, where the uh, the opposing counsel comes in and basically sort of dismisses the main protagonist as she's clearly the underling. Uh, was that a true story? Yeah, it, it's I, I remember that bit. It's when the the, the the instructing solicitor who should have been with Lee Mitchell, the character in, in the book, who is based on me, they turn up late and they see Lee in a suit, black woman, and her defendant also in a suit, but a, a, a rogue white guy. And he just automatically assumes that Lee has to be the man. And he just goes up and says, oh, Mr. Mitchell, I'm so sorry. And this is your defendant. And that's what he does. And that didn't, that did happen to me, but not exactly in that way. Um, I I have, it, it, it weirdly, it happened to me in a different way. It happened when I was defense ombudsman, when I turned up somewhere and, and someone started talking to my um, chief of staff and completely ignored me. <laughs> and I just done a speech. And, and, uh, and th there had been a talk that day about um, um, bias. And it just started to talk to, you know, thought that that was the ombudsman. I just sat there and just waited until my chief of staff, White, said, you know, this is Nicola Williams and she's the ombudsman. Then they got really embarrassed. So it it didn't, that 
instance in Without Prejudice didn't happen to me then, but uh, I know people that has happened to. Absolutely, I know people that has happened to at the bar. But that was my example later when I was defense ombudsman. And, and I know we want to talk about the new book, but just uh, just one more question about the old one. Um, yeah. I remember finishing it, sitting in the back of a car as I was uh, being driven. Uh, the sun was setting. I was coming back from the north. And, and having put the book down to the side, I immediately opened the window to get some fresh air. And it wasn't the yes. quality of your writing. It was just all I remember in that book was everybody was smoking. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and, uh, was that you, what made you decide to open the window? <laughs> yeah. Were you a smoker in those yeah, days? Yeah, and you know, the weird thing is, Michael, I've never smoked in my life. And I and one of the things, because I always wanted to write, and this is a little bit about both of the books, so the genesis of them. I, want, I used to read um, a lot of, particularly John Grisham, I have to say, when he was good, he did fall off a bit, but now he's come back up and he's just as good as ever. And I read a lot of the sort of legal drama, but, and, and, but, you know, all of the, the writers were American. And all that we had here really was Rumpole of the Bailey, which even when that was uh, in vogue about 25 or so years ago, it was still out of date. So I thought, well, nobody else is writing anything and and, and I should. But I, I wanted to write a, a, a black female protagonist and I wanted to write about the, 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 the English bar uh, as opposed to setting it in the States or setting it anywhere else, because I knew that there was a lot of exciting. It, it, it can be very sex, drugs and rock and roll at the bar. It, it, it really can. Um, you know, not saying any more than that, but it, it absolutely can be. And uh, so that was the reason why, why I wrote it. But I also wanted to make some differential between me and her. And I'd never smoked, so I, I said, all right, I'm going to make her a chain smoker. And then back then, because the book was actually originally written uh, 25 years ago and then got republished by Penguin. That's the Penguin cover there. Mm in uh 2021 so so the smoking was introduced so that everyone would know that that wasn't me because i because i didn't i didn't smoke but i'm i uh, until proven innocent is a second lee mitchell novel but because there was such a long gap between the two books um not when they were published 21 23 but when the first one was originally written i wanted to write the second one as if it was a standalone novel. So you could read that first and then come back to Without Prejudice. You could read them in sequence. They would still make sense. But I, I, I have an arc that I'm going to write about a, a, a woman at the bar uh, between the ages roughly of 30 and 40, because a woman's life can change an awful lot in that way, professionally and personally. And also I wanted to examine big ethical questions. So Without Prejudice is how can you represent someone you know is guilty? Standard question, Every criminal barrister has been asked that at least once, and I've been asked that many times. Until proven innocent flips that on its head, how can you represent someone that everybody else thinks is guilty and is a really reprehensible human being is accused of an awful offence and is, not, is quite irredeemable in many ways? But even so, maybe they didn't do it. And then how do you take on a case like that when everybody else will criticise you for doing that? That was until proven innocent. And the third... the. The first draft of the third book that I've just finished on Friday is going to be about the power of the barrister's clerk, because people don't understand just how powerful they are. Think Succession and Game of Thrones, and, and then you've got some idea of what it is. And what made me start writing again was uh, lockdown. I think um, I, I kind of lost faith in myself as a writer. So one thing I will tell people if I had to pass on any advice is, you know, it ain't over till it's over. 
Um, I'd lost faith in myself as a writer, but something inside me wouldn't let me just leave it alone. And then during lockdown, I I thought with um, there was interest. Penguin republished without prejudice because Bernadine Everisto got behind it. And I'd met her completely by accident and before she won the booker. And when she won the booker, she got behind mine and five other books. And that was how that got republished. But during lockdown, I thought, even if nobody else sees Until Proven Innocent, I'm going to finish it because, quite frankly, I fed up with feeling like rubbish because I hadn't written it. And um, and uh, the rest is history. And I'm very happy to say that my writing career is back on course again. And there's going to be a lot more coming up about Lee Mitchell and other things, too. So. Oh, that, that's excellent to hear. Um, and, and I must say, again, you know, until proven innocent, uh, what I personally got, got out of it was that huge tension, as you said earlier, of having to defend the indefensible. I, I just I just yeah. loved it. And I, yeah. it, it had me on the edge of my seat in that regard. So it's, it's an excellent book. What's the third one going to be called? The working title is The Diary. Um, okay. And that's because the, uh, the the clerks who run the barristers' lives, they have a work diary. and But also this one has a kind of like a, a sort of blackmail kind of diary where he's got all sorts of dirt on people in chambers to make them do what he wants. And then something happens to him. And yeah, so it's, uh, yes, there's uh, a, a, a lot of people that, who are involved in that. Okay. Well, uh, we've got, uh, got, got quite a few uh, questions here. And folks, do feel free to put a few more in, um, and we'll come on to your ask in a minute. Um, but to, during your time, this is from Madeline Moon, who, who knows a thing or two as, a, as, a, as, a, as an MP, um, a f former MP, I should and say. I, and important. I didn't know that you knew Madeline, who's also a friend. So there you go. <laughs> you we have well, all these connections. <laughs> Madeline's online, and she's asking, during your time as the Armed Forces Complaints Commissioner, what were the greatest impediments to your capacity to investigate complaints? And what additional powers did you wish you had had? Okay, <laughs> I should have known that if Madeline was there, she's gonna ask you a question like this. So thank you, Madeline, I think, so for that. Greatest impediment was not enough money. Now, I will say this, everybody in public life even pre-COVID would have said they didn't have enough money. But uh, the office was not, um, it wasn't funded, I think, to, it, it wasn't funded to deal with its capacity. Possibly when it's on a, you know, when it's on a page and people are drawing it up and they think this is how much we'll need and this is the number of people we need. That's one thing. But what happened is that as we started to look forensically at some of the cases that came to us, not everyone was worthy of an appeal or looking at it by our office. But the ones that we did, we got a reputation for being, if you like, tough but fair. And once we started to get that reputation, more and more and more people um, started to come to us. And so the demand outstripped our supply. So I think constantly having to um, not get our budget cut um, to get staff, to keep staff, that was that was the biggest one. And so what was the second part of that question? Oh, really, uh, what additional powers did you wish you had had? Um, I, at the moment, I can't think of an additional power, but I can think of an additional um, person that I really wanted, I really thought the office needed, was its own independent lawyer. I say that because, yes, I'm a, a, I'm a barrister and I, I was sitting part-time as a judge even when I was the ombudsman, 
But I shouldn't, as the ombudsman, I didn't think it was fair for me to double hat like that. I was the ombudsman and I really should have had my own lawyer. Every other ombudsman role that I'd done, I had my either my own lawyer or access to my own lawyer in, 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 in the Cayman Islands. Uh, so I think the office, uh, I think the office, let's just put it this way. I don't know now if the office has its own lawyer. If it doesn't, it should. And certainly we would have benefited very much from that because otherwise we were having to go to either government legal or very early on to the MOD lawyers themselves. So, of course, they were inherently compromised, not because of, the, of any um, venal failing on their part. But if they work for the MOD and the services work for the MOD and we work for the MOD, it's, it's, there's not enough separation there. So those are the two things straight away that I would say. This is for me. Do you think that the Armed Forces Complaints Commissioner really makes a difference? Absolutely. One hundred percent. Could it? Um, I, I think if it would make an even greater difference if it had more investigators and more access to resources, definitely. But I do think it does. And if you, you don't need to take my word for it, you can ask. Uh, you can ask a squaddy. You can ask a young person or, or any person, actually who is a member of the armed forces, because as well as my role as ombudsman, I used to, I made it a point 10 times a year to do visits, three per service and one overseas one. So I got a chance to meet uh, our armed forces wherever they were in the world. And every single one without exception said that they were glad that I came. Um, some of them were glad that I could actually get into a tank because one time I had to do that. And I think the, the assumption that they have is that, you know, you're sitting in your ivory tower in London and you, you, you can't even lift a coffee cup, let alone hoist yourself into a tank. So I think they were quite impressed about about that. So it kept me going to the gym. Um, but yes, I do think it, I do think it made a difference. But I also will say that prior to I was the first ever um, ombudsman. Before that, there was a, a commissioner. A, a, I've forgotten the proper acronym, but 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 basically my, my predecessor had the same kind of role, but none of my powers. They didn't have any investigators at all, couldn't go in to look at things, couldn't dip sample files, couldn't do anything like that. So I was the first one that actually managed to have those powers. And, and Madeline would probably tell you offline, it, 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 took a, it, it took a little bit of, um, bit of a sleight of hand to even give us those investigative powers. So I think when you've got the first one, the first one takes a lot of brickbats for loads of other people. I'm hoping that my successor in title will have a slightly easier time of it. But ultimately, you can only you, resources will hamper everything. You can. I became very expert at doing much with little, very much so. But there is only so much you can stretch that little. So, I probably should explain that Madeline was a member of the UK delegation to the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. Um, ah, Ma Madeline's great. We've got a lot of time for Madeline. Probably should, should probably should have thrown that in earlier. Thank you very much for your question, Madeline. And uh, folks, please do pile them in. Uh, we've got uh, another question here from Clive Bullen. Um, I, I did warn you that we've got a great audience, but they're very direct. That's technology economics. Yeah, I'm, right on. I'm, I'm happy for direct questions. Okay. So Clive's asking a blunt question. On a scale of 100, which is total, <laughs> down to zero, there is none or doesn't exist. Where has racism changed from and over to during your lifetime? <sighs> okay. During my lifetime, <sighs> all right. I don't know during my lifetime if I would say it was up at 100 being total. I think if you asked my mother or my late father, I think they would say that 
absolutely. I would say for me, it was, if I think about not going to school, because kids aren't really racist, you know, it, it's more what happens outside of school. So I, I think it was probably, but it would have been high. I would, say, I would say it would have been about 80 to 90. Where is it now? I would say in terms of my profession, I would say that that has really undergone a massive change. So I would definitely say it's under 50. Um, I would say it's probably down to about maybe 30. And that's so for you're talking about a, a drop from 80 to 30. But I'm not going to say because it would be absolutely disingenuous of me to say that it has completely gone. Um, is uh, London and the UK less racist than other places? I mean, we're seeing what's happening in France right now. If you asked a French person, I think they would say yes. I can't I can't compare to that. I, I, I don't know about that. Um, uh, so things have massively improved. I would never say that they haven't. They have massively, massively improved. But there are still things. There's no room for complacency. There's still things that can be better. If, for example, for women of whatever ethnicity, if there are still hurdles to be leapt over and battles to be fought and won for women, if it race um, is at a worse point than that, and if you have the two that intersect, race and ethnicity, you can see that can be a bit like dealing with a double glazed ceiling, not just a glass ceiling, well, double glazed ceiling. So I, I would say in answer to your, the, 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 the questioner, um, in my lifetime, things have gotten from really, really bad to um, much, much better, much better. And I, and I hope that if you ask a younger person, someone who's like 18 now, uh, that by the time they get to my age, they'll say it's gotten even better. I hope so. Uh, but I'm only giving a snapshot of how I experienced it, and particularly with reference to my profession, um, rather than a, a, a wider societal picture. Hmm. Do, do you think that uh, racism but is... Before I say, I welcome direct questions, so people can be as direct as they like. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I'm sort of curious about is, is it shifting onto other groups or is it really just reducing? Now, that is really interesting. Um, I think overall it is reducing. But I think, interestingly, if, if you take uh, just the United Kingdom, the attitudes and this is a very personal view I'm not expressing anybody else's view I think the attitudes to race in London race and diversity and acceptance of difference in London would be very different than if you go to other parts of the country where they're not used to difference other parts of the country that are more homogenous let's say and and I think that their acceptance of difference will be um, probably rather less that that's probably the, the best way that I would say that, mainly because they haven't been. If you, there's still parts of this country you can go to, they've never actually met a, a real life black person. They would have seen them on television, but not met someone, you know, in the flesh until that person goes to university. And then they see a whole um, wider array of people. And that's why university is so brilliant, not just for um, your degree, but just for the wide range of people that you can meet there. Um, so I don't I, so I, I don't know. I, I think I. I honestly don't know the answer to that. Um, if you ask a Roma person or a, a, a sort of someone from the gypsy traveler community, I think they would say that um, they are discriminated against still in a very open way. But I but I'm only speaking from what my outside looking in is not 
from personal experience of that. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, but but really what I want to say to people, I really want to emphasize that things have really gotten a lot better. They they really have. And it doesn't mean there isn't more to be done, but things have really gotten a lot better. I mean, there was absolute naked, no dogs, no Irish, no blacks, racism when my parents first came to this country. That was naked and evident. And that was not made up. Um, my father um, wanted to join the police force when he first came here. And I say this without fear of contradiction because I know it is true, even though they don't want to talk about it. There was an unofficial color bar in the police force until 1968. So he couldn't join the police force when he came here, even though he was a police officer in Guyana. So if you think about that and then you think about now, it's like light years away. But it just means that we, we can't be those things are hard fought for and hard won. They need defending. So it, it just means you can't be complacent. Well, I, I can sadly vouch living in Brixton in the late 70s and early 80s. And, you know, it was no blacks, no Irish. And uh, yeah. I was on the Irish side. Um, but, yeah, yeah it, I, I, I agree with you. I think racism has, has greatly dropped and prejudice has greatly dropped. It's just we've got a long way to go. Um, yes. But let's let's move on. Um, just a quick um, extra point here from Clive. Um, and, I, and I sometimes see this when people talk about sustainability and awareness, you know, it's like, yes. okay, I'm aware. Now what do I do? And the answer is actually not a lot because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, don't boil the kettle so much, you know, but, but, but be aware. Um, any advice for white people on how we could improve today? Um, is there something that we can do other than uh, just, just within ourselves? I think be a good ally. Now, that sounds all sort of very touchy-feely and what's an ally, but effectively what it means is this. If you see, um, if you see or hear anything that you know, even if you've never experienced racism, you kind of know if somebody's saying or doing something that is off. You you would know that, and what you do is that you challenge it, and so that would be the the first thing. And challenging doesn't have to be, I know what you did and I saw you. It doesn't have to be scolding, but it means that you bring it to the attention of the person that's doing it. The person that's doing it may not even know that they're doing it. They may not know that. Sometimes they do, but, you know, it could be unwitting or witful. Uh, but um, but you challenge it, however gently or otherwise you do it. And the other thing is, I, I think, to be prepared to have, and this happened after the, the murder of George Floyd, actually. A lot of organizations did that. Um, be prepared to have uh, uncomfortable conversations because talking, particularly in the in the the white heat of that immediate moment, both in the States and here and all around the world, Feelings are running really, really high then. Um, there was a lot of, I think, justified anger then too. But um, it, it, what happens is that people, it, you, you had at then um, white people or non-black people wanting to know how can we help and genuinely wanted to do that. But sometimes when they were told how they can help, it was quite hard to hear. Uh, because maybe people weren't filtering it as they otherwise would do because feelings were feeling very strong. And the other thing is that black people were being asked, well, tell us your experiences of racism and and how that affected you. And if you tell people that over and over and over and over, what it does, it sort of re-traumatizes you. So um, so I think that's, sorry, it's a little bit of a roundabout way of answering your question. First thing is, if, if you, as a white person, if you hear something that is um, discriminatory or biased in any way, um, just point it out to that person, you know, you can gently do it and just see if they change their behavior, that's one. And secondly, if you're going to have a, a discussion about race, be prepared that it might feel a little bit uncomfortable. It might be uncomfortable for a black person too, you know, you don't want to keep talking about race all the time, but 
you have to kind of go through that uncomfortableness to get to the other side. But it's all for the good. And I can always tell if someone asks a question and it may be phrased wrong because I think people are worried that they might say the wrong terminology or something like that. It might be phrased um, wrong or maybe slightly clumsily or something like that. But but I know it's coming from a good place and people can tell if it's coming from a good place. And then if you use the wrong word, if you use like the word colored, that someone once did to me um, instead of black, as an example, um, I knew that person wasn't a racist. I, I, I know them. I know they're not a racist. They just use a word that is like not one that people would use. And I wasn't going to hold that against them because they did that. They wanted to learn. They want they were coming from a good place. So I think that's the most important thing. Well, thank you. We got that. Be a good ally. Now, um, we've got a couple more questions and not a lot of time. Uh, and I yes. do want to move on to your ask. Now, you like Shakespeare, as you said. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I love the quote of his. Time's the king of men. He's both their parent and he is their grave and gives them what he will, not what they crave. But you um, came up with this question, not we, and I loved it. Resilience has led to success. And everyone asks for advice to your 18-year-old self. What advice would you give to your 70-year-old future self, Nicola? <laughs> I think, because I'm, I'm a long way from 18, but I'm not 70 yet, so that's good. I'm a fairly long way from 70 as well. Um, so I think it's, it, you know, everyone asks about the 18-year-old, they, they got the 70-year-old. But what I would say, actually to both, I would say, don't worry so much. Just don't. Because worry doesn't achieve anything. It can actually keep you stuck and you don't actually do anything. So I think um, I would definitely say, um, um, don't, uh, first, above all, don't worry so much. Don't be so stressed about that. And also, I would say, um, protect your work-life balance. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean 50-50, because I'd be the first person to say, I've not managed that 50-50 balance. I really haven't. Uh, but you protect that your life has to have lots of different elements in it, not just work. So you protect that whatever time that you allocate to, let's say, your non-work life, even if it's less than 50 percent, it should be protected time. So because those things are important, you don't just get to the end of your life. You look back on a stellar career, but there are other things that you could have done better with. And if you're starting late if you're starting at 70 or 18 or whatever it doesn't matter you can always start and try to get the balance back and a a very practical one take travel more and take more photos and remember to upload them don't keep them on your phone as I did and then one fateful journey when I was representing um, Her Majesty's Armed Forces in well I went to Canada to, to review the UK Armed Forces there and some water spilled on my mobile phone on a long, long, long prairie ride journey back to Medicine Hat. And I had a whole load of photos on there that I didn't back up and it all went. I mean, if, if anybody this is a general ask and also especially to you, Michael, because you know everything. If you know a way that you can recover um, photographs from an old iPhone, I still have the phone because one day I keep hoping technology will help me to recover them. But there are a lot of really important photographs from there, like a trip that I did with my mom to Guyana for the 50th. Um, anniversary of independence some when I became a when I became a judge didn't back them up all those are gone um so some really wonderful trips that I took um and a tuk-tuk race in Thailand taking that and some really what so those are the things I would say and so they apply to both your 80 year self and your 70 year future self but I would say more than anything don't worry so much 
And and I think on a more serious note, that's one thing that I hope COVID has taught all of us because COVID came completely unexpectedly. Um, all right, maybe there was a prediction that there might be a pandemic striking the world once a century as has proved to be the case, but it was unexpected to everybody in a real sense. And people died, people are here today, gone the next day. People are here one Christmas, gone the next Christmas. So really, you know, just don't worry about stuff so much. That's the one thing I would say. And it's the one thing I'm still learning to do because I still worry a lot about things. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's pick up uh, this question. If you could be a bit terse, but I'd just like to slip it in and then a slightly longer yeah. question. Um, Hugh Purser is just, could you just tell us a little bit about Speakers for Schools? I mean, you and I both know Sue and, and she's done some tremendous work, but how do you find it and what is it about? Um, I think it's an amazing organization. I think they approached me when I was, when I was the uh, defense ombudsman. So it would be sometime after 2015. So it's within the last 10 years. And they, what, what they do is that they get people to go into schools where, um, I hate using terms like disadvantaged backgrounds, but I can't think of a better one at the moment. But certainly schools where um, kids wouldn't normally expect to become barristers, for example, or, or, or whatever it is. You go and you talk about your career. And I particularly wanted to do it because um, I, I said I'd be happy to do it because I have had a split um, education. I was half privately educated, so I got the benefits from that. But I was half state educated, too. And I got the benefits from that. And there are a couple of disadvantages that went with that, too, if you don't have teachers that believe in you. So I wanted to be part of that. And it, I, I love going into school and say, look, I came from South London. Um, I still live in, albeit a different part of South London, but I still live in South London. And I just went to half my time was at a regular school. And, you know, and I managed to do all of this. And if I could do it, you could do it. And it is amazing that even now, 20, I haven't done it for just about, a year and a half but last time I did it there were still people that were really really shocked to know that it is it is possible and uh, so that's the reason why I do it and I can honestly tell you I love it so much I of course it's voluntary but I would do that all the time if I I just love it so much I love it well it's certainly an organization that I support and you'll see in the uh, chat room folks a link to there particularly if you want to volunteer we've got time just for our final question I'm afraid only only a couple of minutes yes. um Okay. Um, and it's back, uh, back. This is from Annette Spencer. And Annette is curious. Do you think there is a bit of a backlash against diversity and inclusion now? It's all fixed. And what are we moaning about? Now, the data shows improvements, but people of African descent are not where they should be on the corporate ladder. Uh, I can give you a very short answer to this. Yes, I do think there's that. I think what happened is immediately after, again, with George Floyd, his murder and the, the worldwide impact that that had, there was a lot of um, a lot of initiatives that happened there, I think. But I was always concerned that there might be a bit of a retrenchment on these initiatives. And I think I'm starting to see that not everywhere, absolutely not everywhere. But in some uh, in some cases, I am my observation, my personal observation is that is what's happening, um, that there is a sense it's all fixed now. And no, it, 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 it takes more being being really real with you now. It takes more than seeing more black people in adverts on television, more black people on television generally. Uh, it, it takes much more than that to really get at the roots of it. So I think tremendous work has been done and was accelerated after his um, killing. But um, I think sometimes it's like it, it's almost like it's a zero sum thing. 
if you concentrate on this aspect of diversity, you can't concentrate on something else. And you absolutely can concentrate on lots of different things. There's lots about disability now, as there should be. But it's almost like, well, we've done race now. Let's look at disability instead. But last thing I checked, there were black disabled people. So you can't really do that. I, I think I think there's a, a, I hate to give the answer that I've done, but that's what I think. And I say that even in the context that a lot has changed and improved, even from when I was a kid at school. But and what the, we've got to do is guide that and make sure it doesn't go back. And 30 seconds, uh, I'm afraid it's unfair, yeah. but it just popped in. Any, any, uh, any comment on the Supreme Court decision on college admissions in America? Uh, that's from Hugh Perker as well. Uh, me, 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 me personally, I, I, I think it's a, it's a worrying retrenchment. And in a way, even though what I was talking about just now was the UK, it kind of is reflective of that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's one of the sad things uh, as a Harvard alum, you know, we've been uh, on the alumni network uh, going over that because we were there in the days of the Bakke case and, you know, the yes. apartheid marches and all that. So, look, uh, you, as, as I, I'm sure the audience can tell, you and I could go on all night and once in a while we do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's very good to see you here. Many congratulations on book two. It really is uh, up to the same scratch as book one, which is very good. And thank certainly you. I'm looking forward to the third one. So folks do go out and buy uh, both of those, you know, with without preju prejudice and until proven innocent. Uh, they're really, really just good fun reads, uh, particularly on the beach this summer. Meanwhile, <laughs> uh, as ever, three rounds of quick thanks. Firstly, thanks to all of you for participating. Uh, and we've got quite a bit coming up this week. Uh, tomorrow morning, not least, what should we teach our children about money? A very thoughtful uh, session tomorrow morning. Uh, secondly, uh, uh, thanks as always to our sponsors for allowing us to arrange uh, widely and freely across all sorts of subjects and to indulge friends and, and all of that. But most of all, thank you, Nicola. You're a warm-hearted, generous overachiever. And we love you, dear. Uh, and we hope to have you back when you do your third book or before. Uh, but thank you so much. And uh, goodbye, everybody. Cheers. Bye, everyone. <laughs>